welcome to the Powerhouse Politics Podcast. I am ABC News Chief White House Correspondent Jonathan Carl. And I'm ABC News Political Director Rick Klein. Rick, I am coming to you from the West Wing of the White House, our very spacious and glamorous ABC News radio booth. Have you ever seen this place? I've been over there, and it is all of the things that you say and more. Oh, uh, it is just it phenomenal. Pass around we, the caviar. We are, I am literally just a couple steps away from the colonnade, uh, not many couple dozen paces from the Oval Office. What's going uh, on in there? I'll tell you, it's, you know, it's, uh, it's bustling here at the White House. It's, uh, I, the, the pace continues. I, I think you and I remarked on how fast the pace was last week. I see no uh, diminution. Is that, did I say that right? Uh, no. Of the, of the, go ahead, help me out. <laughs> diminution. Of, yes. Okay, diminution of the, of the pace. Um, but we, I, I'm uh, very much looking forward to today's uh, Powerhouse Politics podcast because just in a few minutes, we're going to be speaking to one of the most important and influential people in the West Wing, uh, one of the people who I would say is most responsible for crafting the worldview and the uh, broad ideological approach, such as there is one, of the Trump administration. And he also happens to be perhaps the youngest uh, senior member of the Trump staff. Yeah, Stephen Miller, and he's someone that, that you and I have known for a long t- time, going back to his days on, on Capitol Hill, and it's been a meteoric I mean, we couldn't have known him that long, because he's only 32 I, I, years I, but, old. But he's been everywhere already, yes, the meteoric yes. rise, and you, you, you'll know him from the campaign trail. He was out there quite a bit as a part of the warm-up act, and uh, seemed to play just about every role possible in that campaign, and now every role possible in this very busy administration. And John, I don't even know how... You guys at the White House are, are keeping up with it. It feels like there's about 35 stories every couple of hours, and, so I, I, uh, and they I morph to, one into the other all the time. I, I, I went out, uh, uh, rarely, rare moment, grabbed a drink uh, last night with a couple of colleagues at a great place called Jack Rose. Heard of it. Um, here in, uh, in um, Adams Morgan section of Washington. Phenomenal collection of bourbons and scotches. Uh, met with uh, the ABC political director there and 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 my my fellow uh, uh, White House correspondent, and uh, and then figured I needed to get back and you know th- these days we get up so early we you know I mean I'm 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 an early bird special kind of a guy so I ha- had to had to get to bed early, went to bed just as I was trying to get to bed my phone was exploding with news everywhere there were reports of uh, of what allegedly transpired with the president's call with the president of Mexico. Uh, and then there was this story about what happened with the call with the uh, prime minister of Australia. You know, I mean, so that's all flying around. I get up in the middle of the night and there's and there's like more stories coming. By by six in the morning, the president is is tweeting attacks at, at, at Iran is uh, I mean, what else? There were like, there were like well, three or four or five major storylines in the in the space of of eight to ten hours. And before you know it, he's attacking Arnold Schwarzenegger over the ratings uh, of uh, of uh, of The Apprentice, and uh, he is off to the races, describing those conversations, and he's talking about beheadings and uh, and and the the dishonest lying media. It is it and is, and and by the way, talking about revoking the tax exempt status or or. Whatever for uh, for for the University of California at Berkeley right. with the uh, the riots that raged overnight, I mean it's it's really uh, the, the 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 pace here both in terms of what this president and this administration are doing, and in terms of the way the world is reacting to it uh, is is quite dizzying, and I think frankly. That it's by design. It seems like it. I mean, you have to think there's a strategy behind it, even if the method isn't one that the White House aides would want the president himself controlling that Twitter button and what he can put out there and controlling the public appearances and what he can put out there then. But, John, what makes this week 
to me different than last week is uh, the second full week this week is that this is Trump on the world stage. Uh, we, we start the week talking about the the travel ban that affects seven majority Muslim countries. Not a not a Muslim ban. The uh, the White House would say there was some disagreement as to whether it's even a ban, but I think it's fair to call it a travel ban. And now you have the saber rattling with Mexico, the disagreement with Australia, and a standoff that's growing with Iran. This is the this is a this is how it's being viewed on the world stage. No one quite knows what to get out of this president, and he's being tested a little bit, and he's pushing back. Yeah, absolutely. And keep in mind, George Bush was the president that got elected. uh, Herbert uh, George Walker Bush, uh, the forty-third president, was the one that got elected, talking about a humble foreign policy. That was not exactly how I would describe the way uh, Donald Trump ran, but he did run on a more, you know, uh, a a more restrained foreign policy. I mean, we will go and we will destroy our enemies for sure in in his view, but we're not going to tell people and tell other nations how to live. We're not going to meddle in the affairs of other nations. Um, So it's interesting to see how this will play out because we do have the potential of, of, of some real international crises that we can see and there's those that we can't foresee, but there are the ones that we can already see on the horizon. Certainly... A looming showdown with Iran. Iran is uh, testing ballistic missiles in a way that may or may not be a violation of the Iran nuclear deal. Probably not, but certainly provocative. Um, and, and certainly continuing uh, evidence that Iran is exporting terror and meddling in Iraq. Uh, we have North Korea. I mean, when is North Korea going to pop? I mean, nor- you know that there are uh, you know signs of North Korea getting more and more advanced, not only in their nuclear program, but in the ability to deliver a nuclear weapon with a potentially an intercontinental ballistic missile. We have a potential showdown with Iran. I mean, with uh, with China over the South China Sea, and then of course we have the the the, the tensions with our longtime allies, Mexico, and now who knew Australia? Australia, my goodness! And it seems like if there's a theme to the Trump worldview, he he seemed to encapsulate it uh, at that during that speech with the National Prayer Breakfast, talking about how everyone's taking advantage of the United States and how that needs to change. And, and that, to me, is the piece that unites his worldview and the way he's acting so far on the world stage with what happens at home, which is, don't screw with us. I'm serious about this, he'll say. This, this is, the, America needs to be respected, uh, and you need to be talking about agreements, whether they're in trade or military cooperation, any kind of international discussions. You have to treat America with a new level of respect. And if you disrespect, or if he views it as disrespect, he's not only going to call you out, he's going to do it publicly. And that has been another remarkable thing that we're learning so much about these ostensibly, officially, private conversations with world leaders. We're, we're, we're learning a lot about what he's saying, and it sounds a lot like his tweets sometimes. This is this is pretty harsh stuff. And we're seeing what a 21st century version of America first foreign policy uh, might look like. And now, as promised, joining us on the line, we have Stephen Miller, uh, senior policy advisor for the president, uh, speechwriter, man at the president's side, uh, one of the one of the people here at the White House that was with him very early on in the campaign. Stephen Miller, thank you for joining us. Well, thank you. It was a very kind introduction, perhaps <laughs> too much so. We were well, reminding people that we knew you when, back we when you were knew just a hillside. We knew you when. We knew you when you were just a young guy, you know? Um, well, I, yeah, I, well, I've known both of you for, uh, for a very long time. Uh, but as, uh, as you two know, um, the worldview that the uh, uh, President of the United States has been espousing, uh, he's been espousing for 30 years. You can go back and watch interviews of him in the 1980s talking about the uh, emerging economic turmoil 
that would be caused by Japan's product dumping and currency cheating. You can see him talking about uh, threats of terrorism uh, before many people around the country were. You can see him talking about China, talking about NAFTA. It's really remarkable the extent to which um, he's presaged uh, almost everything that's relevant and pressing in our politics today over the course of uh, three decades in public life. So I wanted to ask you, we started out by talking about the pace of the, the pace that we've seen here in, in, in the White House for we're just about at the end of, a, of the second week. And it's been dizzying as a reporter uh, covering it. And I'm just I'm just here in our, you know, kind of kind of watching it and trying to, you know, trying to keep up with everything that, that, that's going on. You're on the inside, very much on the inside. Can you give us a, a window of 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 what it's like to see? This kind of dizzying pace. The uh, you know you've got you've got of course all the, uh, the the calls with world leaders, the executive orders dropping, the controversies, the things that Trump you know says that, that spurs off. They're unrelated to all of that. That, that spur off stories everywhere, and everybody you know getting up in arms. What 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 is this? What has this been like these these two weeks? Well, I think what you've been seeing is that President Trump is governing based on the promises he made to the American people during his campaign. And I think that that's one of the things that the American people find most refreshing and most heartening is that he campaigned on building a border wall. He campaigned on getting tough on trade. He campaigned on getting tough on refugees. He campaigned on defending America's interests and dealing with foreign nations. So these are all things that he campaigned on and that really cross party lines. I mean, you go all around this country, I had the luxury and privilege of being able to travel all across this country. Uh, you know, as you mentioned, you know, I joined the campaign uh, before the first primary ballots were cast. And if you talk to people, Republican or Democrat, many people feel like the United States has been the losing end of most international deals for a very, very long time. So, so if I can ask you to, to look back, and, and this is a, you know, a good time, we'll have many opportunities to do this, but look back over these, these two weeks. What's been the high point and what's been the low point? Well, there hasn't been a low point, but the... There's always a low point, Stephen. I mean, well, for the... I understand that for... And you know, because you know me, that I, yeah. that I mean this with, with enormous respect and all present company excluded. But uh, for folks in the, um, in the media uh, and centered in New York City, Los Angeles, Washington, D.C., um, you know, the idea of having a, um, uh, a curtailment of migration from some of the most dangerous regions in the Middle East um, strikes them as uh, an enormously um, disruptive event. Uh, But for the rest of the country, who are worried about their jobs, who are worried about their schools, who are worried about their ability to get a pay raise, who are worried about their ability to be safe uh, and to have a a country that supports them, for them, those kinds of actions are the just first steps in bringing some kind of sanity to how we approach immigration policy in the United States of America. There's a the divergence of perspectives in terms of how people uh, who are the who who've reaped the benefits of globalization look at things uh, versus people for whom it hasn't been an unalloyed benefit. Um, I think that divergence explains a lot of the difference between the polling data, which shows the enormous popularity of his actions, um, and the response you'll see on certain uh, television networks and some newspapers, uh, where they're I guess not happy that things aren't continuing on in the future the way they always have in the past. So I want to ask about this, the, the, as you put it, the curtailment of, of migration. 
and, and you mentioned it as a, as a potential first step. I'm curious what the next step is because we, I, I, I know there's been a lot of pushback at the idea of a Muslim ban. This is not a Muslim ban. We'll say it for the record. It's not a Muslim ban. But we know candidate Trump said he was calling for a total and complete shutdown of Muslims entering the United States. Is that still on the table? Is that still the aspirational goal? What is the next step? No, well, you're correct that it's not a Muslim ban, and uh, the answer to your question is contained in the executive order itself, uh, which specifically calls for enhanced vetting procedures without respect um, to religion uh, in order to establish a safer method of entering the United States. Just to spell it out in more detail for you, because it's a very important question and it deserves a thoughtful answer. The the executive order that was issued on... um, extreme vetting on national security. First of all, it went through a months-long drafting process. Uh, involved in the drafting process were some of the top and most skilled experts on immigration uh, in Capitol Hill. Uh, individuals who, you know, if an immigration bill is to be written, uh, they'd be the ones who'd be writing it. Um, then that same document, it was briefed to top officials in government, including Secretary Kelly, uh, including his uh, staff, um, and it went through Homeland Security Council review. It went through National Security Council review. It went through Office of Legal Counsel review. It was reviewed by careers, even careers that were hired under the Obama administration, uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So it was an extremely carefully thought out, carefully implemented proposal. The basic concept is this. The Obama administration identified, and you've heard this before, but it bears repeating, sure. seven countries that either could not provide us with adequate information about their nationals or would not provide us. So, for example, a stateless country um, or a country that is um, uh, in enormous uh, civil turmoil, like a like Somalia, Syria or a Yemen or a Somalia, they're not even going to have the capacity to provide that kind of information. And we've seen the results of that in the United States in terms of the Somali refugee program. And one can only imagine how many man hours the FBI has spent, Homeland Security has spent, and federal prosecutors have spent dealing with the uh, al-Qaeda cases and the other terrorism cases from the Somali refugee program in the United States. So then there's other categories of country in which we obviously have less than ideal relations, um, like in Iran would be that example, uh, where it's difficult to get the kind of information that we need. So those seven countries, there's a logic to it that guided Congress and guided the Obama administration and designated them. So the thought process was, first, whilst we develop and implement and debate and work out these new implementing uh, or these new uh, vetting procedures that these are countries that should have tightly restricted entry as a safety precaution and also very importantly to reduce the burdens on caseworkers those are seven countries where you've dramatically reduced the burdens on caseworkers because you're not processing as many new green cards as many new visas as many new work permits um, then that's that's casework and that's vetting work that can then be uh, spent elsewhere during that 90-day period. So After is- 30 days into the 90 days, the Department of Homeland Security, the Department of State, and the Department uh, or the uh, Director of National Intelligence are supposed to promulgate to the countries of the world the kinds of information that they ought to be able to provide for us to participate fully in our nation's immigration programs, the kinds of intelligence. Uh, the kinds of background information, uh, just the kinds of, of um, data points in general that our caseworkers would need to make smart decisions about who to let into the country. Not exclusively to keep out terrorists, but also to keep out 
people who support terrorism, people who spread terrorism, people who support extremism, violence, um, people who support um, bigotry, hostility, anything that would be detrimental to both our national security or just the well-being of the country um, from a uh, from a national um, standpoint in general. Um, like, for instance, if you bring in somebody who uh, who preaches the violent oppression of women, that would be something that would be obviously problematic. Um, then you have a 60-day compliance period that's laid out for countries. And obviously you can develop some, you can use discretion in terms of what would be expected for, say, um, you know, a small island country um, that has no particular history of exporting terrorism uh, versus, say, a country, you know, like a, uh, a Yemen. So obviously there's going to be um, different needs for different places. Similarly, what specific restrictions are put in place, how they're put in place, who they affect, um, all of that will be worked out during the implementing period. So people ask, are you going to add countries, are you going to subtract countries, how's it going to work out? That process must be guided by an intelligence review. What's amazing to me, and what should be amazing to everyone in the media, is that it took this long until our country has even performed such a review. I think most people would be amazed that this is the first such review period that's been implemented since the history of terrorism in our country, which you know has been around for decades. But if you want to pick a particular flashpoint, you could say the 93 uh, World Trade Center bombing. So is it your expectation at the end of these 90 days that, that, that it, this, this no longer is, that the temporary tra- travel ban goes away and that the doors are open again? Or is your expectation that you'll, you'll need to have an expansion at that point? Well, I think, that, I think that, that that's almost a little bit the wrong way to look at it, in the sense that the question is what specific restrictions make sense for what particular places based upon what the intelligence tells us. And so it would be really premature to say you're going to expand it or you're going to shrink it um, or you're going to modify it in some way. Um, the whole point is, and the whole reason why we use the Obama era assessment as the starting point, is because there's a desperate need for a more full and complete intelligence picture. To give an example, um, you know, you've heard it said before, there's about 1,000 open, open ISIS investigations in the United States. What can our intelligence services tell us, and that's why the DNI is involved in this, in terms of the, the threat pattern in those 1,000 cases? What is the immigration nexus in those 1,000 cases? Whether it be the individuals themselves, or, who's, or who trained them, or who recruited them, or who radicalized them, or who supported them, or who shielded them, what is, the, what is that picture? What is the immigration nexus? And what, if we could have gone back in time for each of those cases, could our caseworkers have seen that would have prevented it from getting to the point now where you have to have a multi-million dollar um, terrorism investigation financed by U.S. taxpayers? That's a complicated assessment. And it's an overdue assessment. And I, I don't want to prejudge the outcome of that. So, Stephen, I, I don't want to. I, I want to get on to what you're going to do next, um, and, and a little bit more about about life here in the West Wing. But before we leave uh, the, the this this immigration executive order, um, e- even if you accept what you've said that this made sense to do at this time, that it was that it was measured, that it was necessary, um, certainly the way it played out um, to, to to the public uh, seemed to be you know confusion, chaos. Uh, Disruption to uh, uh, to families, to, to young children, um, fairly or not, that's the way it it, it, it played out um, across the, the television screens. As I'm sure you're you're very well aware. 
Do, do you think in, in hindsight, looking back, is, is there anything that A, could have been done differently in terms of the rollout or or in terms of the way it was communicated, the kind of the, the, the way the White House communicated this uh, to, to, to the rest of the country? Well, and, 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 and please, I mean, I understand you're, you, know, you, don't, you don't like the media coverage. I'm just asking about what you guys did. What, right, what... and I'm, I'm right, and I'm, I will give you a, a thoughtful response, understanding that we probably don't see things exactly the same way on this. But the reality is, is that there was a need for immediate action and immediate implementation, because if you believe as we do that the next Trojan horse is just waiting to come in, that you have an obligation to act quickly and expeditiously to begin the 90-day clock, and again, to begin putting in place at least a preliminary restriction, and also, like I said, then removing burdens on the caseworkers to put uh, those hours into other places. That's point one. Number two is that on the U.S. side, there was, I think, um, 109 um, set-asides for extra screening after arrival. Um, And I'm not counting that, obviously, people who were who were, who were turned away uh, overseas. Right. To put that in context, last year, about 5 million travelers um, into the United States were set aside for extra screening at one of our points, ports of entry. Mm-hmm. Uh, I guarantee you that in any given day that there are many people that involved in our immigration system uh, in one way or another who are set aside, detained, held, uh, investigated or questioned in some additional kind of way, and no one in the country even notices because it's not a subject of media um, interest or scrutiny. The reality is is that for virtually the entire country, the only disruption that occurred was the disruption created by protesters, as General Kelly himself said. So, so could and the White House have done a better job communicating it then? Just, just in hindsight, when you look back and, you know... No, I don't think so, because the problem is is that you're dealing with a and I say this with enormous respect for all the career professionals and, and everyone at these two departments, but you're dealing with a situation where you do have a very big bureaucracy and you have a national security exigency and you have to move quickly and expeditiously. Uh, given that need, it is hard to envision a smoother rollout from an implementation standpoint, given the fact that the priority was quick action to protect national security and also to, to begin a, again, to begin that 90-day clock as soon as possible, and really the 30-day clock is particularly important. Uh, so I just see it differently, and I think also what's really broken here, we all see it differently, but what's really broken here is that, in the White House, that is, uh, compared to what some of the media have said, but what's really broken is we don't ask ourselves the question enough about how immigration and how immigration policies are designed for the benefit of Americans. And so you hear a lot of talk about a uh, disruption that may have occurred for an individual uh, coming here uh, you know, on a new uh, permanent entry card. Um, but the reality is, is that once that person is approved through and the screening is done, uh, that individual will be able to live here for the rest of their entire lives and potentially, depending on income level, access hundreds of thousands of dollars in government taxpayer-funded benefits. In the scheme of things, you know, a few hours of uh, inconvenience prior to a lifetime of entry uh, should not be viewed as an overly consequential event. But what is consequential, and I don't mean to be dramatic, are the quite literally thousands of Americans today who have to visit a gravesite every year instead of having a family member seated at the Thanksgiving table 
or the Christmas table because the United States of America in the past did not enforce its laws or, like in the case of the Boston bombing, did not engage in proper vetting techniques for individuals seeking entry to our country. Too little discussion and effort uh, is made with respect to how our immigration policies affect Americans, uh, and too much discussion, uh, by contrast, is given to what, in the scheme of things, are minor inconveniences for those seeking a lifetime of entry into our country. So I, I realize the, uh, the point you make about about the Obama, Obama folks making that list, but you also realize that, including the Boston bombing, none of the recent attacks have actually involved people who came as part of the refugee program from any of the seven countries involved. Did that act enter well, in, and does that argue for an expansion? Well, there's a couple things there. One is is that um, there's been 400, more or less, individuals that... Um, that, you know, while we, we were in the Senate, while I was in the Senate, that we identified uh, who came through our immigration program since 9-11, um, who um, were implicated in terrorism in one capacity or another, and then a much wider group of people who supported that network of activity, uh, but who either left the country or were not charged. Um, and so, your, again, your threat picture is not just limited to the individuals who've been recently convicted in successful plots but also all the individuals who've been interdicted at enormous taxpayer expense. Um, so that's the first point. Secondly, um, as a starting point, you should begin with where the last group of intelligence assessments guided the administration in terms of countries that aren't giving us proper information. Because, again, part of the theory is here is there may be a country in the past that um, – that sent us an individual who committed the terrorist act. Saudi Arabia. It's quite possible that our intelligence-sharing relationship with them has improved since that event. That's something we'll have to figure out and determine. But you have to you start with the picture you've been given and go from there. But I think the underappreciated point, although it is addressed in the executive order, is that, is that it reduces burdens on caseworkers in the meantime. That's, again, that seven countries you know, where you're not having to do um, nearly as many new assessments for all kinds of immigration benefits that um, probably done is a very time-consuming process. Yeah, and, and, I, and I could see the point on, like, a, you know, a Yemen is going to be a lot less cooperative and helpful uh, in screening on that side than, say, Saudi Arabia. Even though Saudi Arabia, there's a much bigger history of, you know, the, the 9-11 bombers and, and 9-11 attackers and, and, and all, but, but we have a... We have a much stronger uh, intelligence-sharing relationship with them. I can get that. But I, I want to move. There's much more to talk about this, and we'll have more time uh, to do that in the future. But, but I want to ask you about what's coming next before we, we let you go. Uh, one thing that the president has telegraphed over and over again is that he would have a, a big plan on infrastructure, a big plan yeah. to rebuild America, and a plan that might make a lot of Republicans on Capitol Hill uncomfortable. Where do we stand on that, and what can you tell us about what's coming well, I don't think that it will make Capitol Hill Republicans uncomfortable, but we certainly understand... If you spend a trillion dollars, you're going to make Capitol Hill Republicans well, uncomfortable. We, we, <laughs> we certainly understand this hasn't necessarily been the conventional recent orthodoxy uh, in some quarters. But as you understand, the Republican Party historically has been the party of American industry and the party of the American worker. Right? You start with Abraham Lincoln uh, and his attitude on tariffs, uh, and you go through you know, William McKinley... Uh, and his view on uh, protecting American industry, and then obviously Eisenhower and the um, interstate highway system. Um, there's a rich legacy in the Republican Party of building up our country, um, building up our infrastructure, and building up our industry. Um, that being said, um, we think this can be an enormously successful bipartisan 
effort. We think that it can attract support from members of both parties. And that the bottom line is that we have roads and bridges and airports and tunnels that are in a state of complete disrepair. Um, rebuilding them will be an enormous long-term economic benefit. That's not a, this is not like a sort of Keynesian type scheme where, you know, you, um, you borrow money today uh, and you spend it immediately and the money disappears and the benefits never realized. You repair a road and make it easier to travel for commerce and you bring new workers into a community or new workers out of a community, you create enormous long-term economic benefits. And we think that will be very easy to sell. Especially so what's it going to look like? How, what's the price tag going to be? You know, foreign countries, uh, pension funds, um, uh, domestic bonds, all of that is uh, investable. Uh, and so getting revenue for it, in addition to whatever taxpayer resources you use, should not be difficult. What, what, what do you think it's going to look like? What, what, what's the, what is the price well, tag going to be? Well, we're still looking through all the different possible finance mechanisms. So I don't want to, uh, uh, I don't want to commit us to any one particular course right now. How soon? But there are a lot of great ways to fund an infrastructure bill. And the bottom line for us is that this is an investment. This will pay dividends for many, many years. This is a quality of life issue. If there's anything that the government is involved in or could be involved in, that is a true and proper and legitimate expense of money. Uh, infrastructure uh, is certainly close to the top of that list, along with, of course, many other things. But infrastructure is a real long-term benefit to any community where it is. What's your timeline? When do you think we'll see this plan? Uh, well, a lot of it depends on um, the speed with which uh, we make progress on health care, the speed with which we make progress on taxes. Uh, there could be an intersection between how you handle tax and how you handle infrastructure just because of the um, the potential for repatriated uh, assets overseas to be a possible source of uh, revenue for infrastructure. So there may be a linkage there. Uh, but a lot of it just depends on the, uh, on the pace at which um, those items are moved, uh, the Supreme Court confirmation. This is going to be the busiest year that many of us have seen in our entire lives. And to your own point, uh, we've already started with transformational change on many different fronts, and um, I think that pace of activity is going to continue. Well, and it's been dizzying already. Before we let you go, have you seen the new cover of Time magazine? They're, they're arguing that Steve Bannon might be the second most powerful man in the world. What's the reaction to that? And is the real answer that Stephen Miller's the second yeah, most when, powerful when, when's man When's the Stephen Miller Time magazine cover? I mean, come on. It's not... It's not is not sought or desired uh, on my part. But, <laughs> very, very smart, by the way. Can, very smart. I can, I, I can state this to you categorically, and it's actually a good place to close because it's where I began. The only person who makes decisions here is Donald Trump. The only person whose vision is executed is Donald Trump. The only person who is guiding the strategy of this White House is Donald Trump. It's his vision, his policies, his insights. Like I said, he's been, he's been laying out this roadmap for 30 years. The Time magazine, and I don't want to be mean to Time, but it is uh, sensational and ludicrous. Uh, Donald Trump comes up with the policies. He comes up with the words. He comes up with the vision. Um, you know, he is, America for, he is America first to his core. That's who Donald Trump is. That's who he's always been. I would say he's the best public orator since William Jennings Bryant, and he has a better sense of the pulse of the people of any president, uh, at least since Andrew Jackson. So... If, you know, the media has, um, and the present company excluded, um, has constantly uh, both 
you know, got on him wrong, underestimated him, failed to give him his due credit. Um, but, but what he has accomplished and what he has proven is that he understands and sees in this country um, and has a vision that has eluded the people that the media held up as the most brilliant consultants and pollsters uh, and strategists, and he outsmarted them all. And I just hope that the media will give uh, the president the, uh, the credit he really deserves. Well, Stephen Miller, thank you for joining us on this podcast. And Lord knows we, we spend a lot of time talking to people that are very critical of, of, of this president or back when he was a candidate. Uh, we, we, we talk to people that support him as well, of course. And we appreciate having you on to kind of articulate the, uh, the, the, the philosophy and the ideas behind uh, what we're seeing uh, uh, transpire. And we hope you come back. Uh, we want to talk to you when, when the infrastructure thing com- comes back. We'd love to have you come back sometime and talk about um, uh, what, what, what he's trying to do in terms of uh, America's place in the world. Uh, but we appreciate your time, and we know you're, uh, we know you're incredibly busy here. So we, we thank you for joining us. Well, I appreciate both of you and the work that you do. And uh, my line is always open. Uh, and so anytime you need to uh, get a sense of what's going on here at the White House, uh, just give me a call. Okay, great. Thanks a lot, Thanks, Stephen. Stephen. Thank you. Bye. So there you have it, Rick. I, you know, I'd, I'd say that uh, Mr. Miller's a true believer. Yeah, and, and all credit due to, to him for identifying a, a candidate he could work well with and that, that he understood. And by all accounts, Donald Trump has a lot of respect for a very young man who came as an outsider to that circle. Uh, it is an interesting collection of people that ended up running that campaign, but he was at the center of it and one of the few voices that, uh, that, that got to write speeches for the president uh, when he was a candidate and continues in that role now and, and understands the vision, understands him completely. I think you see it, you see it there. And look, the, we, as you point out, John, we, we, we have a lot of people who are critical of this president and our job in many ways, is, is to chronicle where the government it can be questioned on things and to question that. There is a big chunk of the country that is excited about this moment, and the frenetic pace suggests action, and the vision behind that action are people like Stephen Miller and Steve Bannon on the cover of Time. They are the ones that are, that are implementing, uh, through the vessel of Donald Trump, a, a pretty bold and aggressive vision that, that has the potential to remake this country. And I think it's worth, and I can already anticipate that some will say, why did you do this inter- long interview? You're letting him go on. I-, I think it's important to try to understand what, what the thinking is here. I mean, it's like, like I mean, Lord knows we've, uh, we've, we've, we've chronicled the chaos. Uh, yeah, that's right. It's, uh, I-, I think it's important to understand the ideas uh, and, what, and what, what they are trying to, uh, to accomplish. And, you know, you can, you can argue whether or not this is for good or for ill and whether or not it's effective, certainly. Uh, but, uh, but, but Stephen Miller has, um, you know, articulated, uh, for lack of a better term, Trumpism um, probably more clearly than, than just about anybody else. Agree. And, and just, just in, to unpack in, in what he was saying there about infrastructure is a great example of a way that he is going to approach this issue in a way that doesn't have any respect for the traditional ideological lines of Washington. You put a big price tag on something, yes, Republicans are going to balk, but you find different ways to fund it, maybe the Democrats balk. But at bottom, if what motivates them isn't who's going to be happy on the left or the right, but motivates them as American jobs and infrastructure and actually rebuilding this country. That's where you get the broad consensus of the country on board. It isn't about higher taxes or lower taxes or the deficit or the debt. It's about let's try to move for America. That's the sense of action that Donald Trump is trying to project. Uh, and, and, and the dizzying pace is part of that. And I think uh, the, the intellectual underpinnings are important to understand. I agree with that entirely. 
And right now, the left is uh, in full-on resistance mode, revolt mode against this president. And the right, uh, in, a, in large measure because of the Supreme Court pick we, we saw this week, uh, is uh, is rallying around Trump probably to a greater degree than we have seen even through the campaign. Um, but I don't know where that's going to go. Um, clearly, uh, this president, I think that it, Stephen Miller and uh, Stephen Bannon um, see this this president as, as trying to pick off some of the constituencies of the traditional constituencies of the Democratic Party and the, the big one would be union workers um, with uh, with a protectionist uh, agenda with an, uh, with an agenda that is not that concerned if, if concerned at all about about budget deficits, uh, uh, more concerned with some good old-fashioned uh, infrastructure uh, spending, stimulus spending as, as it was called under under President Obama. And, you know, that could create some interesting dynamics uh, on the Hill. I, I don't know if he's so poisoned the well, if this president is so poisoned the well already with Democrats that they won't be able to, to, to work with him on this. Uh, but I could see some very interesting uh, coalitions uh, developing. Of course, a lot's going to depend on where he is in terms of his overall popularity as well, which right now, you know, he's not in a very good place. That's right. And you mentioned the Supreme Court. And, and I think because of the pace of everything, the way that the Supreme Court pick was plucked in the, in the middle of this very, very busy week with all these other fights going on, it, it, it ensures a political clash around that that could color others. And I'm curious to see when the dust settles from this, because I think there's going to be enormous pressure on Democrats to go to the mat on this and to filibuster and they could blow up the whole Senate over this. When the dust settles and you start talking about some of the other initiatives like like an infrastructure reform and tax reform, where where the coalitions are, are resting, because this is a, this is a hyper partisan time, but it isn't a partisan president at the center of it. And I think that that is a fascinating and different twist on the dynamics we've seen here for the last couple of presidencies. And we'll be tracking it right here on Powerhouse Politics. But, Rick, I think uh, we should let you go back to work. And Me? Man, I, I, you're, you're the one in the middle of the firing line there. Go back and find out what's going on. All right. Hey, well, thank you for listening. And remember, sign up on iTunes, Stitcher, all those other places. Where's it? Google Play Music. You know all the stuff. You know, the, you know where to do this. Sign up for our podcast. Give us a rating. Thank you for listening. And we'll be right back here on Powerhouse Politics next week.